Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It is August 21st, 2015. We're going back into the archives today, back to February 1st, 2013, episode 272 with Dr. Ralph Moon. Dr. Moon will be our keynote at day three of the Healthy Building Summit, the IEQ Mold and Disaster Restoration Conference coming in September 30th to October 2nd at Seven Springs Resort in Somerset, Pennsylvania. Let's go back and listen to the interview with Dr. Moon. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Okay, today's guest is Dr. Ralph Moon. He's also a CHMM, Certified Hazardous Materials Manager and Certified Indoor Air Quality Professional. We're going to have an interesting talk on water losses, duration of loss, building science. Dr. Moon has over 30 years of experience in the duration of loss studies, risk assessment, project management, industrial hygiene, and indoor air quality assessments. He has a Bachelor of Science from Western Michigan University, a Master's of Science in Botany, and a Ph.D. in Biology from the University of South Florida. Following graduation, he was awarded a postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Chemistry at the University of South Florida and later served as a consultant to the Jim Walter Corporation as an industrial hygienist where he evaluated formaldehyde emissions from wood building products. Also, while employed by the Florida Department of Environmental Regulation as a district hydrologist, Dr. Moon served as a clinical professor in the School of Public Health. He is currently working for the past 18 years with HSA Engineers and Scientists of Tampa, Florida. They are an industry-leading engineering consulting and forensics investigation firm with offices throughout the Southeast and over 300 employees. We've got some... uh, Intro music, right? Let's do it. Good one, Cliff. That caught me by surprise, too. Dr. Moon, do we have you on the phone? We do. I, I didn't realize how much those lyrics apply to what we do every day. It's beautiful. Right? I don't know how he does it, but he comes up with these every week. Well, welcome to IAQ Radio, and thanks for joining us. You're welcome. We, um, we'd we like to start. Let's, let's kind of set things up a little bit. We've got a lot of activity in the Northeast here, Sandy, and we had uh, Dr. Yohaning on. We've had Dr. Chin Yang in the past, and talking a little bit about drying and water damage buildings and and i i know you did several papers on drying and, and heat drying i just wonder if you could give us a couple an overview of you know 
what's drying all about? What, what are the important elements of drying for our water damage guys? Well, the, the basics for drying are the same no matter what equipment is used. Uh, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to raise the, the energy, raise the temperature. We, in scientific, we call that ki- the kinetic energy of the water molecule. You've got to give it a little boost. And the whole intent of raising the kinetic energy is raise it so it goes from, uh, from capillary moisture or free water to water vapor. So you've got to give it a bump, and that requires you to raise temperature. The second thing is you've got to have an environment that accepts the water vapor. So as we all know, you can't dry a shirt in a room that's 100% humidity because there's no place for the water vapor to escape to. So for that reason, the, the relative or the humidity content in the area or the room you're trying to dry has to be lower than the surface. So it has to be a little bit drier, lower in humidity. So we've got raise the energy, lower the humidity, and the final thing is real obvious, air movement. You've got to move that water molecule that escapes the surface by either capillary action or free water and move it away from the surface. So that requires air movement in, like fans. So those those three elements, if it's a, a ele- elevating temperature with a propane tank, if it's uh, lowering the humidity with a dehumidifier, or by using fans to accelerate air movement across the surface, all those things combine to dry something. You know, I wanted to set up with that, and then I wanted to go into a little bit about the differences between new and old construction water losses, and and then maybe we'll go into the duration of loss a little bit, because I, I know you've done a lot of work on this and 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 speak about it pretty regularly. What, why is that such an important concept that, that people should keep in mind when they're evaluating a water loss, new versus old construction? Well, I kind of look at it in an analogous way. To automobiles, if we look back to at the beginning of the century with the Model Model T and the evolution that vehicles have made to the current day. I mean, they all have the same components: an engine, a body, transmission, tires, and so forth. But if we looked at a Model T, then to say something built in the 50s, then the 70s, and now 2013, the technology and the efficiency and the design are completely different. We noticed this when we were doing hundreds of claims, a certain pattern showing up in old homes versus new. And just like the vehicles, the homes that we were looking at that had certain water damage had a pattern of damage that was different than newer ones. And so in part, that, that, that is dependent upon how they were designed. We look at the old homes we did down in uh, Hurricane Katrina, I mean really old homes, uh, uh, where they had these beautiful balconies, large staircases that were all aerated by just open ventilation, uh, not ceiling fans, but attic fans, typically limited air conditioning, uh, plaster walls. All these components contribute to a house that managed moisture in a non-engineered way. They dried out naturally by typical ventilation. Contrast that with today's homes that have a lot of absorbent materials, <clears throat> uh, it was wood-type products, as Joe Stebrook would describe, um, particle board, plywood, OSB, and so forth. The way that the moisture is managed in the newer homes is just much different. So what we started to look at is just what are the characteristics of old homes for moisture damage as compared to new. And, <clears throat> for instance, in the older homes, some of the things that we noticed that were remarkably different were, uh, for example, 
the strategies for the uh, the, the uh, uh, landscape berms. There was a tendency to to uh, to back in the 60s to place these berms as architectural features against the outside of typically cement block and sometimes, if it was the worst case scenario, a wood frame structure. <clears throat> and those landscape berms end up to be basically tubs of water against the exterior of the building and classically would leak after about 10 or 15 years of operation. They'd be exacerbated if, for example, the roof drained right into the landscape tub. And that was a kind of a typical circumstance we'd look at just drive a drive by and say, there's a problem. Hmm. Another another feature might be, uh, for example, the uh, uh, crawl spaces where uh, moisture from drainage would go under the house rather than be separated by the foundation and accumulate. And those are typical things with older farmhouses too, where the water drains underneath the house. Were, were so... I'm just curious, were there differences in the types of microbial growth in old versus new construction? Well, I, I'm not sure there's a distinction in the types of growth in terms of species. Uh, I, I, if we look at old and new, I remember a discussion with another consultant underneath the basement of a, in the crawl space of a Mississippi farmhouse, looking at the growth that had been there probably for decades and answering the question, could we date this? I answered no, but not after decades of growth. But I think that the types that grow typically depend upon moisture content and duration. If it's new or old, it's just that you just seem to get more of accumulation in certain places with older homes than you do with new. Okay. And when you were doing, I, I know you did work in Florida as well after some of the hurricanes. Did you see these patterns repeated there as well? Well, with mold growth and the hurricanes, I think we, you know, we saw a, an interesting reflection on growth on particular types of materials, <clears throat> gypsum board in particular. Uh, we, we understood, I think, better about the retention of moisture by various materials like gypsum board and ceilings, and the tendency for them to collapse upon, you know, ab uh, absorbing or worse, serving as bathtubs in the ceiling and collapsing down. Uh, after a storm, uh, I think there was a, an interesting pattern of growth on contents that was more recognizable after a hurricane because of the sustained moisture conditions that went on for weeks and months because of the absence of electricity. So there was there were interesting observations with respect to mold growth and moisture after hurricanes that was characterized by the type of materials and the duration they were wet. And another area you've done a lot is the, the duration of loss. And I'm just wondering if you could give us a, a couple of just key points with respect to, you know, it's a, it's a common problem, trying to figure out, was this pre-existing? Was this something that occurred as the result of this um, current loss? And I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us a couple tips on, on your thoughts on that. Okay, well, let's, let's start out with the, the restoration scenario. We've all been in condos and homes where there's been a loss, and you pull back particle board or, I'm sorry, gypsum board from a wall, and you see this big growth of mold. And it's dry to the touch. It's flaky. It you know, comes off of your, your fingers. You realize, oh, they had a previous loss. And so we've seen these events happen, the, the evidence of the events from before. We can't date that specifically, but we know it pre, 
occurred prior to the current event based upon the location, the moisture content, and the, 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 the feel of the mold being you know, basically crumbly. And we, would, we can easily date that as before the loss, and then new growth, of course, would be something more current. So this prompted a curiosity in us. And about uh, four years ago, we built walls in, 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 our, in our laboratory and basically just put them in water. And we used just ambient spores from the air to populate uh, you know, the, the growth. And we, we photographed them and took tape samples to quantify the general amount and the types of species that grew. And to no one's surprise, uh, there's a sequence that occurs. And this is something that occurs in biology all the time. Uh, we call it natural succession. And for those of us who grew up north on Lake Michigan, we saw natural succession from, you know, uh, sand near the, near the Lake Michigan to, to the final oak forest in inland. The same thing happens, but greatly abbreviated, on gypsum wallboard. And that's the types of species that progress naturally from uh, based upon water activity or, and or moisture content, available sugars, and then the ability of successive fungi to elaborate enzymes that then start breaking down the media, particularly cellulose, that occur later. So that natural progression made sense. We just hadn't really tried to research it. So we did that uh, with the help of uh, Dr. Chin Yang to identify species and give us some encouragement. And we found that there was a repeatable sequence of mold growth that occurs within the first 100 days. We carried out the research to 1,000 days. And I found that after about day 200, 200, it became very stable. And there wasn't much new growth. But the first 60, 70 days is really quite active and fun to, to quantify. So 60, the first 60, 70, can you give us a little idea of what, what did occur in that and what, what species or what, um, yeah, I guess what species were more prominent in that first part versus the later part? Later part? First, first couple of First couple uh, w- weeks is almost always the same. It's aspergillus, okay. uh, and and depending upon the bio load, the types of species that are actually in the the materials to begin with, and there are certain species that are are there to begin with. Uh, it, it progresses then from aspergillus uh, to uh, a clados, uh, sometimes cladosporium, just depends upon the circumstances. Uh, ketomium. The, the reproductive structure, later on the spores and ketomium, and then the, the other ones that we see so often, uh, curvilaria, bipolaris, and then uh, much later, we, we, we were na- not able to get stachybotrys into this circumstance, but we think that between month three and four, we might get stachybotrys to grow after sustained conditions of elevated humidity wow. and moisture. Wow, that's a long time. Three to four months. It is, and that's yeah. Other pa- other papers, like Chin has said, you know, seven, eight, nine months, depending upon the circumstances of the material, if it's really new or older. But it, it does vary. But three to four, I think, is a reasonable estimate for uh, stocky batteries. Fascinating, Cliff. Uh, yes, uh, welcome, Doctor. I was having some uh, uh, connection problems. I dropped the connection, and uh, I'm sorry. I missed part of the interview, but I'll. Definitely listen to it again on, on recording. Uh, my question deals with 
uh, a document that is in various IICRC uh, standard documents. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it or not. It's a chart, and what the chart says is it shows this progression of of water loss from fresh water, and then what happens is it says over a period of time, this fresh water changes categories. It goes from gray, and then it goes to black, and they say that fresh water becomes black water in a 48-hour period. And I always thought that black water meant, you know, like sewage, and it just never made any sense to me. I wasn't sure whether you were familiar with the chart or whether you agreed with it. You know, I'm not, I haven't seen the chart, but I understand the consequences. And I'm, I'm actually doing some research right now in response to Hurricane Sandy, who are taking new wood materials and immersing them in fresh water, and in salt water, groupings for one, two, three, or five, three, four, five, and six weeks. And I was surprised for one week, I looked, I pulled up my containers for the salt water, and I had filtered salt water. And within a week, it was dark brown, and you could tell there was a film of microbial growth on the top of the surface. So you might say, why does that happen? Well, you know, uh, when we immerse materials uh, with carbon source materials like wood and so forth, they're not, they're not perfect. And we add it to a, 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 an aqueous media, be it salt water or fresh water, and with time, within hours, bacteria are growing, and with potentially several days, but not too much in immersed situations, fungi can grow. But the bacteria do grow pretty prolific, prolifically in the com- com- combination of a carbon source, moisture, and nutrients. So there's a progression, just like I described on the gypsum, but wallboards, when you add something to moisture, there'll be a progression of, of available fungi and or, or bacteria, and then those that are introduced by your hands or by air, and it'll, it'll progressively get more contaminated with microbial growth, and in most cases, bacteria. So it, so it, it evolves, so to speak, from a relatively pristine condition when the loss first occurs to something different as contaminants begin to grow. Do you Thank have, you. Are there any other differences you can tell our listeners about with respect to saltwater versus freshwater claims? I've heard things like um, after a saltwater claim that, or after saltwater water damage that um, mold growth is more likely more quickly in the future. And I'm just curious, and it sounds like kind of what you just talked about, but I wanted to let you elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. I don't have an answer on that one yet. I know that we're studying the, just the expansion of materials, wood materials in particular, of salt versus fresh. And I've only got a few weeks of data so far. But, the, but there is a difference. Uh, I have a slight difference depending upon the materials. We're looking at pressure-treated, non-pressure-treated lumber, plywood, and OSB. And the intent, we know that when these materials are exposed to moisture or free water, that they, they, they can expand. Now, whether or not they do so more with salt water or fresh water, I don't have all the data yet to make that statement. But there is some in- interesting consequences when, when wood products are exposed to salt water and then they're dried. And that is there's a deposition of salt in the material. And what I'm curious about, one, if you were to measure the moisture content with our typical, you know, Tramex-style moisture meter, mm-hmm. and it has dissolved, you know, it has dried salt, 
will it show a higher reading? Because obviously the conductivity is higher with salt. So that's an interesting question I have. And the second thing is, um, once the material has been exposed to salt, does it tend to attract moisture and retain moisture as a result of the salt crystals now in the wood material, in particular composite wood products like OSB? So those are, those are great questions. I'm not sure if they've all been answered yet. I, I don't, you know, the Wood Products Laboratory doesn't quite do that kind of research. They don't do a, the, the abusive things that we see all the time in the field, but we need to test that to see if there's a you know, physical problem with these materials after they've been immersed in salt water and fresh water, in particular salt water now with the Hurricane Sandy. Cliff. Yeah, I, just a little follow-up on, uh, on the question of the salts in the wood. You know, certain salts are used in wood as preservatives, you know, borates and, and so on and so forth. So I'm not sure whether or not it, this uh, ability of the salt to grab moisture out of the air and hold it may vary between different types of salts. But, you know, we've seen that if um, they're using a preservative which pulls additional moisture into the wood, that that might not be such a good idea. No. Well, it just—it's just, it just a, a variable. We, we should—we we should understand because there's always that question on the insurance side: is has this result in, in resulting damage? Is, is the presence of this is this is, is this change the composition of the wood? Its structural integrity, its performance, and so forth. And so, it's an interesting question that we have to examine more thoroughly now. Okay, cool. Agreed. And, and I guess with respect to. The- a follow-up on, on on the salt and and the the salt water versus um, the, the clean water. Are there different microorganisms too that would grow uh, based on that distinction between whether you had a salt water or a, a freshwater loss? Well, well, certainly the, the fungal and bacterial populations of salt water are different than fresh. The challenge is that once once the material has been exposed and then dried. Uh, it, it, does that still provide a, the environment, the proper environment for the fungi and bacteria normally associated with fresh water to then grow on the salt water impregnated materials? And I guess that depends upon weathering and exposure to, to you know, fresh water there, there afterwards. So my guess is that, yes, there is a difference between the two uh, environments, but with regard to our basic our passion with damage to wood materials and structures does that change it significantly that we'll have a different population of fungi on a salt previously salt covered piece of wood versus freshwater and my answer is probably no not not with time but in the in the short term there may be different uh fungi and bacteria associated with both both types of media now this follow-up's a little i didn't Kind of, you know, we typically talk to the guests before the show. We give you an idea of where we'd like to go on the show. And and I noticed in your bio, you did some work on uh, release of volatile organic compounds from wood products. And I'm just curious now, as a follow up, is there a difference, or if you know, between the VOC release based on salt water versus a freshwater damage? No, uh, I, I can't say that I could give you a good answer on that one. Okay. Uh, I, I know that you know there are. What I have noticed in, in just the, the materials I'm doing right now is that you know there's a kind of a characteristic odor of a home once it's wet, and in the first within the first seven days you walk in, and the house may smell a little bit moldy, but you smell just that that odor of just wet wood. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a kind of a classic odor. 
And I noticed that, the, you know, in the, the research I'm doing right now is the odor off the salt water wood is exactly the same. It just smells like wet wood at this point. Now, how this will change on weeks two, three, five, three, five, six, seven, we're going to do it for 96 weeks. Uh, it, it may change significantly. But during the initial phase of wetting, uh, you know, most floods, with the exception of Katrina, you know, tend to last maybe one to two weeks at the most. They, they, it, water seems to reside or uh, to drop down for that. But the odors seem to be about the same, at least according to my nose, salt water or fresh water during the first week or two. Two, three months later, boy, it could be completely different, but we don't know yet. Uh, Cliff, no, I, I, I got a text from Cliff. Did we do the cave? No. Now, this is a good place, I think, for the follow-up because we talked about you know the changes when we have that um, water that's been in a building and then has been released I, I, I wanted wonder if you could tell our listeners what you call the cave effect okay cave effect is a description of the types of type of homeowner that lives in that dark cool box and I I kind of characterize all structures as, as essentially a box it can be a little box it can be a big box but nonetheless it's a box that we live in I had these claims and I would go to them, and uh, I'd be sitting there in a patina of mole growth. And the first effort is to try to find some type of leak, a roof leak, a pipe leak, a vanity, bathroom, ice maker, HVAC. And I'd go to the house and find nothing. And the house would be essentially dry, except that it had this patina of growth. And I would I had my mask on in my Tyvek suit, and I'd sit down on this moldy leather couch and say, hey, what am I missing here? What is wrong? Why is it so moldy? And it occurred to me like a light bulb. You know, you know, all the windows are closed. This is a hurricane-shuttered condo. Or, in some cases, there is incredible vegetation over this entire house on the north, south, east, and western side. This is getting less sensible heat load by one means or another. And as we uh, did more uh, classes with train here and, and carrier uh, classes on HVAC, they realized that when you purposefully cover the windows of a home to protect from hurricanes or there's gradual shading with growth of vegetation, is that you're lowering the sensible heat load on that box. And when you do so, you tend to not meet the, the, the design capacity of the HVAC to operate effectively and remove moisture because you, you keep it cooler, it reaches the set point less often. So you walk in these homes, they're like, are cave-like. And again, they can be any size and dimension, from a penthouse to a trailer. And if it's dark and damp, uh, look at the vegetation and see if that, in combination with shutters and windows, you're just not in a shaded unit. And as a result, the HVAC is not coming on as often, it's not dehumidifying, and you're creating an environment that's favorable for that initial low water activity mold, typically aspergillus. And that's, that is often what we see in these homes uh, from all along the coast that are shuttered up for six to seven months. The homeowners come home and they're covered with a patina of mold. And we attribute that, we call that cave effect, because they're essentially living in a cave, and we had a chance to publish it a long time ago, you know, several years ago in the Claims Advisor magazine. Uh, and uh, it seems to explain a lot of circumstances where there's been no release, but you have low sensible heat load. 
One of our uh, regular Florida listeners, John Lapotere, typed in humidity bloom is, uh, I guess, the term he uses for that same, the, the same effect he sees in, the, in those areas, uh, humidity bloom uh, and cave effect. So we've got two right. ways of describing it now. Uh, let's do this. We've got to stop and thank our sponsors real quick, Dr. Moon. We'll be back for the second half of our interview. We're having a, a great interview on water damage, duration of loss. I want to talk a little bit about fabrics too when we get back but uh, let's stop and thank our sponsors we'll be right back with the second half of our interview with dr ralph moon Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Ralph Moon. Let's get the Z-Man on the line here. Cliff, I, I just wondered if you wanted to start off, you would uh, put together a question on the fabrics issue, and I wanted to maybe start off with that because it co- kind of combines the two issues. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, Dr. Moon, you conducted a study on the restorability of fungal-contaminated fabrics. And Joe and I wonder whether or not information from that study would prove useful for fabrics contaminated with sewage or flood water, such as from Sandy. Hmm. Well, they're they're a little bit different uh, with regard to uh, like oils and greases. I know we're we're wrestling with that now with uh, with questions with Sandy with with wood materials being inundated with uh, fuel oil gasoline and kerosene but with regard to bacteria uh, I think that that 
because they don't have, and there are filamentous bacteria, uh, but I think that, you know, that, that issue becomes more emotional than it does sometimes technical. Uh, and, then, and I'm thinking from the perspective of the homeowner who's offered the chance by the restoration contractor to uh, rehabilitate some clothing uh, that has been in sewage. And though technically, you know, they, if there is it's an actual performance measurements on bacteria before and after the testing, if they were to render that acceptable, I mean, safe after cleaning, the homeowner may still reject it. So, so there, there are questions of both practicality, which I like being practical, and there's also questions of just aesthetic acceptance. And so with regard to the issue of cleaning sewage in particular from fabrics, uh, I, I, I think that sometimes we have to really communicate well with the recipient of the product, say, hey, do you want this even though we've cleaned it? Cliff, do you have a follow-up or you want me to? Did we lose you, Cliff? I think we lost Cliff, Dr. Moon, but I can yeah. I can follow up on that. We, the fabric study was very interesting. And I, I know that you, this was a, a study where you, you know, well, maybe you could just give our listeners a quick overview of what the study, what was designed, what were you trying to find out when you did this fabric study? Okay. This, this fabric study was... Uh, financed by the Fabricare, National Fabricare Institute. And they very graciously offered their facilities for, to clean using the best available technology at the time. We tested four types of fabric, silk, wool, polyester, and cotton, fairly common, uh, a, a very uh, uh, a unique type of fabric, and that these were registered or licensed type official representations of these four types of fabric. And then we purposefully grew, uh, we, uh, grew uh, mold on the fabrics over a period of several months. Uh, we added stachybotrys and aspergillus in particular, plus allowed air uh, infiltration onto the fabric when they were wet, grew them, and then, then cleaned them by those four methods. Uh, the four methods were detergent, detergent with bleach, uh, uh, tetrachloroethylene and petroleum ether. And, and the, the intent was, okay, how effective are these four cleaning methods uh, on fabrics that support microbial growth? And the results of the study showed that if we were to look at it in a quantitative way, the most effective method of cleaning was detergent with bleach followed by hot pressing, I mean steam pressing. Steam pressing in itself helped to deactivate some spores. So then the second was the detergent, and I think the third was maybe petroleum ether and then dry cleaning. And we're, we're not saying that they didn't work. They certainly made everything look better. But if we were looking at residual spores or the transfer of mycotoxins from one fabric to another, we concluded that they all gave a benefit but the best was detergent with bleach. And I, I find it fascinating how long it took, number one, to grow the mold on these fabrics, regardless of the type, I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong. And also, 
and, and you had them under ideal conditions. Um, that to me was kind of surprising. And then kind of the, the location of the growth I thought was a little surprising to me as well. And I wonder if you could kind of uh, elaborate on that for our listeners. That was, that was really interesting. For the first month, we, we purposefully added millions of spores onto these uh, fabrics. And Dr. Chen Yang helped to develop uh, these, meat, these large containers of free spores uh, that we poured, literally sprayed onto the fabric. So they were definitely contaminated with fungal spores. Then they sat in uh, a closed container supported by uh, wood dowel rods, just like you'd hang a towel on a rack in your bathroom, but kept wet. So the spores are there, the moisture's there, the fabric's there, and after a month, nothing happened. I thought, oh, my God, I can't even grow mold. This is crazy. <laughs> and we've got, it, we've got it everywhere. You know, we look, but I can't grow it in this, in this box. So uh, what we found out, and I, talk, I called Chin, I said, what is going on with this fabric? He says, well, you, you haven't provided a carbon source because the mold will not grow on cotton or silk or polyester because it, it cannot break it down. It just doesn't have the capacity. So if we add, he says, look, at, add a dilute solution of Gatorade because Gatorade is sweat, essentially. No, the Gatorade people don't say that, but it's derived from their analysis of sweat. has all the different components you need for nutrition and free sugars or simple sugars to encourage growth. So I did, and boom, within just a couple of days, you started to see it growing on the fabric. And by the end of another month, it was quite prolific. So here's the story. Uh, many times we go to these homes that have had some water losses, and we're asked to evaluate contents for mold growth. And if, if you've been in the business for more than a year, you've been in homes and you see plenty of mold growth on contents like shirt lapels, ties, shoes, pants, and so forth. But remarkably, the reason why you see mold in those particular areas is because there's been something deposited there to encourage the mold to grow. Some type of sugar or proteinaceous or maybe a fatty component, but mostly sugars, that encourage the mold to grow. And so I just had a case uh, in Miami which went to trial on whether or not mold had grown some furniture. And um, they, I, I, just, I did tapelet samples, couldn't find but a few loose spores. Well, this was in a meticulously cleaned condominium. Despite the fact that it experienced elevated humidity, the microbial growth was really next to nothing. And that made perfect sense. So those of us who have been in the business, we open up these closets of these wet homes. We see mold growing on the ties. Well, they drip something on it. But the, the, the distinction between mold growing on fabrics or not depends upon the availability of typically simple sugars to allow it to grow. Cliff, do you have a follow-up? Um, it, kind of, Joe. Uh, what I'd like to do is kind of move over to the, uh, you know, you had told us that you, you use a, few, a portable field microscope for some of your investigative work, and I'd like to know, number one, why you do that, and number two, uh, if the homeowner can learn anything or benefit from that approach. Well, I, I like to use a portable microscope. First, I feel comfortable using it. I had training from, uh, I think it was Dr. G George Snow of Canada. He was a renowned uh, mycologist, came to our office for a week, trained about 14 of us in fungal taxonomy, 
Plus, I had lots of coursework. But, I mean, if you're going to use a microscope, you got to know what you're looking at, in all fairness. So uh, we bring a microscope in the field, and this is what I find. I go to a, a client's home, and it's usually a woman. She's got some kids. She's concerned about a water loss and subsequent damage to her contents. I bring the microscope out and say, hey, let's look together. We're going to find, if we find microbial growth, my, uh, fungal growth, we'll find very consistent-looking appearing spores, be very predictable. And if you've got it, now you know. If you don't, we'll look some more just to make sure you're comfortable. So we start pulling off tape samples, and we come across you know, very classically aspergillus spores or ketomium or curvilaria, whatever, and, and they see it, they understand. So the, the benefits I see, one, is I'm not just taking a tape lift that's into a laboratory, although we may do that too if there's litigation involved. But if, if I can do that in the field, I can help satisfy her that I've really looked to her, to her ex, to the extent she wanted. Plus, she'll pull out other stuff I can look at too. But I want to make sure she's comfortable that her contents do or do not contain growth of mold or spores. And you bring that microscope in the field, and they really love it. Plus, the attorneys love it. They, I mean, if they're there at the site, they, have, they can see it. And so if you can enlighten your audience, you know, you, you are the teacher and you also diminish all the frustration of, the, of waiting for a report. But if they see it and they understand it, then you, you capture them as an audience. Cliff, do you have another one? You want me to go? No, I've got one more. Go for and, it. And uh, it really deals with this uh, time period uh, for which we make inspections and we're indoor environmental professionals. And for what time period? do we have a responsibility and a liability for our professional opinion and the report? Now, are you, are you saying how much time do you have after a loss to come in and look at it? or No, 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 no. If, if I've made a report or given an opinion, how long does my liability, what is the tail, the end tail of my liability? That is a great question, and here's why. We've all discovered in the business of being an indoor air quality professional that whatever we produce generally has a very long tail. If not months, clearly years, usually three to five years, because that's kind of the envelope in which litigation could occur and come back on you for discovery and so forth. And I, I think that, that that's an important question because when we go to a home and we cross that threshold, we don't realize we've walked into the deposition in terms of our, our responsibility. And all our actions, reportings of photography and so forth begin typically with the assignment and crossing that threshold. And we have responsibility really to do a professional job. As, as outlined in a recent uh, publication by the Guidelines for Forensic Engineering Practice, we're not all engineers, but that book by ASC is terrific and gives us a perspective on our long, I call it long-tailed responsibilities. So they are vast and they're detailed, and we owe it to our clients and to the people we investigate to do a good job. Thanks. I, I wonder if while we're on that subject and, and before we, this probably will be our last question before the roundup, I wonder if you could just give our listeners who perform 
either investigations or remediation, kind of a an overview of the um, the ways of ensuring that you, I, I shouldn't even say ensuring, but ways of uh, reducing your liability when doing investigation or remediation. I know you and I talked a little bit about this before the show. I thought it was well stated right. and kind of succinct. Yeah, and and let's let's not let's not uh, avoid or not let's not let's not uh, uh, go over the fact that this is a legal question, avoiding liability. But in practical terms, you know, for the remediation contractor, to me, the most important aspect is a clear scope of work that you feel is defensible, that is communicated with the client, so there's no mis- mysterious aspects of it. And also, the, the, and, and, and the explanation of the reality of what we do, and that there are often surprises, and let them know that in terms of the, the scope of work, the predicted path, and that there are certain things that happen, like difficulty in drying, access to removal of materials, and so forth, that are the reality of our work that can result in things taking a little bit longer than we anticipated. There's also the expectation uh, and this is one reason why I find you know, the restoration industry, you know, it, it's so tough. And that is client satisfaction. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's really hard to do even a great job on restoration and have a perfectly satisfied client. And so that rapport, uh, the the relationship, the communication is absolutely important to limit long that long tail and to have a satisfied customer at the end. And I think when just now and when we talked earlier, the thing that really got my attention was that when there is a change and and there will be invariably changes, that communication is so important. And and having that documented, too, I would imagine, is also important. Look, we've had a change in in the scope and we've got to document that change in scope and we've got to communicate that clearly with our client. Great, great advice for our uh, listeners out there, Dr. Moon. What I'd like to do is go to what we call our roundup for the last 10 minutes here. We're going to bring in our technical director. We'll all ask one last question, and then uh, we'll wrap this up, Val. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Right. Let's go with uh, Dr. Weil first, and then Cliff, and then me and Val. All right, Dieter. Oh, there we go again with Beethoven. Always wakes me up. <laughs> <laughs> your time, Dieter. You're on stage. What's What's but, on you your mind? You guys mind? have a good time, don't you? This is, this is really something. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's uh, the main part. <laughs> to do a boring show, uh, show is boring. Anyway, uh, uh, South Florida, is this where Tom Bernard and Yahya Homad uh, are teaching and professors? Yeah, I don't, I don't know those guys. Tom Bernard? No, I, I don't know. Tom Bernard, uh, both of, all, all three of us went at the same time, got our doctorate basically in the same time at the University of Pittsburgh. I know they're in Florida, that maybe there's more than one university down there. Big state, sure. Huh, but uh, I, I think Ralph made a couple of wonderful points. 
and the first thing on drying, I've been teaching um, and and uh, uh, having a degree and a master's, uh, a bachelor's or master's degree in mechanical engineering. I did thermodynamics, and I'm teaching uh, psychrometrics for I don't know how long. Anyway, my my uh, and, and and you said that beautifully. I make it one step easier. I said, guys, think of your dryer at home. Are you having a cooling machine in front of it, or is that damn thing heated? <laughs> and I said, oh, we have a heater in there. I said, I wonder why. Why do you have the heater in there? Oh, that makes it easier for the water to get. I said, yes, it does. Now, what do you do with the moisture-laden air? Unless you are at this time in Alaska, what do you do normally with the air? Get it out of the house. That's you it. dump it out of the house. Out in fact, the, uh, I look at my, I have three, uh, humid, uh, it's 35 here, 30, uh, mine is about 32 or 33 right now. So uh, there's not, I, I'm, I'm drying my house, that's for sure. <laughs> but that is the thing. Um, uh, uh, that 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 I always tell people said it's easy to remember. Said you got to heat it and you got to get rid of that. Yes. Okay. It, and you said that beautifully. The other thing is, and I mentioned that also. Now we all gargle, not all people gargle with with salt water, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But where did we get the bacteria or whatever else is in our throat from? Well, basically not from the sea. So we think of salt water killing, quote, everything. There are millions of organisms in salt water that are quite happy there. Just like some of the fishes we have, they only can survive in salt water, and we have fishes in uh, fresh water. They can't you know, survive for any length of time in salt water. So that in itself, just if you have salt water, it will not kill, quote, everything. And I think your point is also there. You know, salt, we know, is hygroscopic, and it may attract moisture. And you said it, and we all know that, moisture and food is yeah, just wonderful uh, for mold growth. Mm -hmm. The other thing is also, which I liked, is you know, with that relative humidity. People take a, a – and I, I like, by the way, how you set up your studies – I really don't give a damn what happens in one or two days. That that is that is easily taken care of. Right. But uh, yeah, I said, hey, what the heck is happening over time? And so that time uh, is, is, is as usual incredibly uh, uh, important. And uh, you, you pointed that out, and that's the way it ought to be. Um, that you don't really know what is happening down the road because not much is changing over there. Right. And the relative humidity, you mentioned that also briefly, is not necessarily a good indicator. If you measure the relative humidity in my house right now, and I said it was whatever it is, 35% uh, relative humidity, and what do I have here, 69 point something, 70 degrees um, uh, temperature, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean a heck of a lot of what it was a week ago or what it will be in a week. Yeah, and it's, again, that time element in there, which is so important. Right. That, that's the element I remind the guys when they go out to a home. Most likely, the circumstances you're seeing in this home on the conditions you see when you're there now. 
Besides, think back, think back. One, two, three, four, five months on different, you know, the seasons, and 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 think and, and see in your mind where this was at that time with respect to condensation, thermal bridging, humidity, and so forth. And that'll give you a perspective of why it's occurring now. Great. Yeah, comments. that is ab- absolutely right. And yeah, so now we spread some human ashes on the moon. My God, if somebody comes there a little bit later, (laughs) here is is evidence that there was life on moon. (laughs) (laughs) The chances chances of finding that one in that spot are very, very slim. Uh, You're a classic, Dieter. All right, let's get Cliff on. Cliff, any final questions for Dr. Moon? Thank you, Dieter, as always. Just one. Um, I, I read among your publications, uh, Dr. Newman, that you had some tips on uh, how an inspector could determine the duration of water damage within cabinetry. Uh, could you kind of... Well, we, we spent about two and a half or three years looking at cabinetry because everywhere we went, we see these collapsed cabinets. We asked the homeowner when it occurred. said, oh, last weekend. And, you know, it just didn't seem to make sense. So we, we looked at... Uh, both unfaced cabinets, melanin-faced, and vinyl-faced cabinets exposed to dripping water from just free water, a, just, just uh, tap water, and tap water with detergent. Did separate experiments to simulate a leak from the water supply and simulate a leak from the drain, which typically has a, something to lower the surface tension, you know, some, a, a surfactant. And we found that the least competent material, meaning plain, ugly, open-faced particle board on the bottom, which you rarely see, but you see sometimes in South Florida, dripping water every day, about 200 mLs, cause an ultimate failure collapse in about 62 days, so two months. Hmm. So under kind of worst-case conditions, we finally got a collapse in 62 days. The melanin never, we went, I think we went to uh, 700 days. It never quite collapsed. It did form a bowl, and that's classic for fresh water loss in a in a cabinet where it forms a bowl-like configuration because as the water hits the melanin, it doesn't penetrate. It runs to the side, off the edge, on the joint, swells the particle board, and then swells it up. So then the water then flows to the other side of the cabinet base. So over time, you get this swelling of all the peripheral joints and a bowl in the middle. And that was, that was we've seen this so many times, and you have perhaps too, uh, water loss inside vanities and kitchen cabinets. The other interesting thing is we all speculated, well, if we add detergent, this must be worse. It wasn't. Interestingly, when you add a surfactant to that water, the water penetrates the particle board and is dispersed, and the appearance is much different. <laughs> Interesting. I'm glad you asked that one, Cliff. Uh, let me. I, I, we got two left, but I'll, I'll do a quick one. The last one's pretty quick. With respect, you work a lot with insurance folks, adjusters, etc. What can you give our listeners who do remediation and and um, inspection type work a tip on on how to better work with adjusters? You know, this sometimes becomes an adversarial relationship. How do we how do we work better with these folks? You know, the basic, the basic uh, thought in working industry is something that my colleague, Kevin Ormsby, told me 12 years ago. Communication. They don't like surprises. So when you're working with an insurance adjuster 
and you've submitted a bid or some estimate for, for removal materials, don't surprise them. You know, be open, you know, break it apart, you know, use the typical methodology for doing estimates. But I think that that's probably the, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest factors that lends to both improving and diminishing relations with the insurance industry is clean, open communications. So when you have challenges uh, or circumstances that work out, then uh, and you communicate, it, it, they're usually very understanding. The big surprise is when you dry a home, submit a bill for $35,000, and they say, wait a minute. And the challenge with that is it casts a certain feeling toward the entire industry. And, and that's the nature of the business, but it's something that we all have to be careful in how we represent ourselves and communicate with insurance uh, adjusters and companies. Thank you. Val? Uh, yes, Dr. Moon, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I, I, uh, my, my only comment about the, the, the discussion in general is that I would encourage people to, to do research, to study the behavior of building materials with moisture and various types of things like the solvents and kerosene and gas, and, and, and determine how they actually respond. So when you have to testify or explain why you took this out or didn't, you have a technical basis having, to, having done so rather than simply an opinion. Okay, and uh, do you can we get your website up on uh, for for the folks out there that might want to learn a little bit more? Is, is there a place where they can go look at some of your uh, your research? Yeah, some of the papers I think are on our website for HSA engineers and scientists. So it'd just be hsa-env.com or www-hsa-env.com, uh, uh, or just type in Ralph E. Moon PhD, and and everything will come up with that too. Well, I want to thank Ralph Moon, Dr. Ralph Moon, for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. It's been a great discussion. I look forward to meeting you in Atlantic City. I understand uh, chances are very good you'll be there. Cliff and I will be there. Cliff, I want to thank you, of course, for joining us, as always, and calling in from good old Mexico. Uh, Great to have you back. We'll be back with you again next week. It was my pleasure. Well, Thanks so much. It's been great. Uh, and I want to thank, of course, Dr. Dietrich Wow, who always adds uh, some color to the show here. And uh, great to have him with us as usual. Val at the controls, Roxy V, good job. Thanks, Most Jeff. importantly, our growing group. Of, oh, we've got Dan Coughlin on next week. We're going to do a little kind of an offbeat show, a little bit on you know, how important it is for those of us out there that are running businesses, how important what you're doing is and And a little entrepreneur-type discussion next week. He's been a keynote at the RIA conference in the past, and looking forward to that show. Uh, Please also want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. As always, please come back and join us next week for the next episode of IAQ Radio. You drove me, nearly drove me out of my head. While you never wasted a tear Remember, I remember all that you said Told me I was too plebeian Said that you were true with me And now you say Well, just to prove that you do 
You can cry me a river, cry me a river. I cried a river over you.